we are entering into this uh, new 10-week study in the book of James. The, the book of James is located towards the end of the Bible, towards the end of your New Testaments. In fact, it's just eight, chap eight books from the, from, from the back end of the Bible. So you can just go to Revelation at the end and start flipping backwards, and, and you'll very quickly, Revelation, then Jude, Peter, John, and then, in, and then into the book of, book of James. It's a short letter, just five chapters long. In, in, in my Bible, it's literally just like three pages. You, you, could, you can read it in about, in about 15 minutes, but in spite of its brevity, the, 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 this little letter is packed full of practical truths to live by. Now, that said, what I, what I want to do is give you a little information, a, a little bit of background information about this short little letter. And to begin with, let me, let me just say, it was most likely the first letter of the New Testament, the first letter that was penned in the New Testament. The, the letter itself gives a few internal clues as to when it was written, and it comes right at the very first verse where James says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Now, you read these words, 12 tribes, and obviously we're talking about Jews, Jewish people. We're talking about Israel. And this reference to Jews or Israel being the recipients of the letter, what I want you to know is that James is writing to completed Jews, people who had come to Christ, people who had gave their lives to Jesus Christ. And there was only one time, only one time in Christian history when the church would have been comprised only of Jews. And that, that, that was kind of right at the very beginning. On the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the, the church exploded onto the scene, literally, I mean with power. The Holy Spirit came and, and came upon Peter and the apostles. They preached powerfully, and on that day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to Jesus Christ. Now, what you need to know is that Peter was preaching in the temple courts, and the only people that could have been there were Jews. It would only have been, have been Jews who not only heard Peter's message, but received Peter's message about Jesus. And amazingly, if you think about it amazingly, it took about 10 years for the, for the message of Jesus to move outside of the Jewish family. In, in, in about 10 years, Acts chapter 10, Peter, again, was called by a vision to, to go to, to, to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius was a Gentile, and Peter kind of went there not really wanting to go, but he was going there under the call and the compulsion of God. And when he got there, the Holy Spirit came. It was like, it was like a Pentecost Two, ten years later, and pre Peter at that point preached because, because of all that was going on, preached to Cornelius' house. Cornelius' household received Jesus. They were all baptized. And, and what you need to know is that this was an incredibly difficult moment in the church. So much so that when Peter got home, back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11, he was called in by the leaders of the Jerusalem church to explain his actions in fact, in Acts chapter 15, the debate is continuing. Four chapters later, which might have been as much as 15 years later, the debate is still going on about what just happened. How in the world did, did, did we allow this message of Jesus to go to the Gentiles? And the question was, do the Gentiles, before they come to Jesus, do they first need to become Jewish and then become Christians? And the answer to that question was, no. Jesus came for all people. Now, the point is that James' letter doesn't mention any of this. 
which means that James was probably written before all of the events with Cornelius and the Gentiles be adding to the Christian fold. Now, in addition to that, the reference in James 1.1 to Jewish Christians who are scattered among the nations is most likely referring to the events that took place in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. Remember, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 was arrested. He was appointed to be a deacon in Acts chapter 6, and this godly man was standing up with power and testifying to the Lord. And, and because of that, he gets arrested. And, and then at the end of chapter 7, he's literally stoned. The Jewish leadership took him outside. They threw rocks at him until he was dead. And the, 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 the point is that the leading Jews of that day had absolutely become unhinged. Several years earlier, they had crucified Jesus. And when they crucified Jesus, they took him to Pilate to do the deed, Pilate, the Roman governor. The Jews had no authority in Palestine to carry out their own executions, to do anything on that capital, on that capital side. So to get Jesus killed, they literally had to take him to the Romans. Otherwise, they were going to give, give account for it, which would not be positive. But now it's a few years later, five years later, and, and they are so unhinged by the growth and the power of the church that's moving on that they literally grabbed Stephen and they didn't care. They took him outside and they stoned him. And not surprisingly, their actions had a dire effect on the church. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says, On that day, that stoning of Stephen, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. Stephen's death brought, brought about an open season of persecution against the church. And that, that caused a lot of the Christians living in Jerusalem to flee. You have, you have to imagine, as Jews, they had lost relationships with, with people who were not Christians. They, they, had, they were losing their jobs, losing their homes. Their lives were in danger. So what they did is they up and they left. They moved. They probably went back to where they had come from. A, a bunch of them probably were moving in with relatives and moving in with friends in their hometowns. These, these, Jewish, these Jewish Christians were literally scattered among the nations. Now, the, the events... The Acts chapter 8 persecution and scattering of believers happened just four or five years after the church was formed. So the church is formed in about 30 AD. This, this persecution that breaks out is happening in about 35 AD. The, the conversion of Cornelius happened in about, in about 40 AD, which probably gives us some bookends about when the book of James could have been written. Sometime, sometime between 35 and 40 AD. Now, some scholars say that you need to really move a little bit further to the, to the council that happened in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, which happened in about 49 AD. They, they say that that should be the back end here, that the book of James may have been written in 47, 48. But, but whatever it is, in my thinking, it's before chapter it's before 40 AD, but wherever you go, what I'm saying is the book of James was probably the first book that was written in the New Testament, which leads to a second thought. Who wrote it? Who wrote this little letter? And the answer is James. And the James we're talking about is the half-brother of Jesus. James, the half-brother Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph, was the one who penned this book. Now, you know, you know, right? Jesus had other siblings. You know that, right? Mark chapter 6, Jesus, Jesus uh, was journeying back to Nazareth, where he was from. 
By now, he's collected his disciples, and he's moving back to his hometown where he's, where he's going to meet with people in that vicinity. And, and on the Sabbath, he makes his way to the local synagogue where he's obviously doing some teaching. And all the local people of Nazareth are trying to piece this whole thing together. I, I, I mean, Jesus is teaching. He's, he's doing miracles. But, but in their mind, this is just plain old Jesus. This is, little, this, is, this is little Jesus. This is the guy that grew up, the, the son of Joseph, the carpenter. I mean, I mean they're, they're struggling with this guy's the Messiah. Mark chapter 6, 3 says these people are asking, is, isn't this the carpenter? This is Mary's son. And, and here the kids are named, the siblings, the brother of James, brother of Joseph, brother of Judas, brother of Simon. Aren't, aren't his sisters here with us? And, and they took offense at him. The, pe- the people of Nazareth had a hard time accepting the fact that Jesus was the Messiah because, I mean, he was just an ordinary Joe as far as they were concerned. And what you need to know is that unbelief moved right into Jesus' family with his siblings. The truth is made clear in John chapter 7, verse 5. It says, even his own brothers did not believe in him. Jesus is saying these things, and they're just saying, nah, it, it, it can't be. In fact, they, 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 were, they were convinced, the siblings of Jesus, the family members of Jesus were convinced that he was crazy. Mark chapter 3 says, when Jesus entered a house and there was a large crowd that had gathered, so, that, so, so, so many people that they couldn't even eat, they weren't able to sit down and eat. And when his family heard about this, that, that he had come to this place and was, was, was meeting here, his family went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. They went to take charge of him. In other words, they were going to go, like, go lock him up at Happy Dales, put him in a padded room, you know, with one of those shirts with the long sleeves and tie it behind his back where he could kind of drool and go crazy. They were going to lock him up. He was an embarrassment, an embarrassment to the family. Now, honestly, if you think about it, their, 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 their unbelief is understandable. I mean, what would, what would have happened in your family if your sibling had showed up and said, I'm God. I'm God. Would you maybe have had a little bit of a hard time with that? I'm just telling you, if my brother had said that, I just would have beat him up because that's what it would have taken, right? I can, I can understand Jesus' family members having a hard time. But it's after the resurrection that we find James, this half-brother of Jesus, coming to faith. In fact, Jesus went out of his way to help his family members along. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 tells us that Jesus literally appeared to James He went out of his way to find James and appear to him to encourage him to come to faith. And and what you need to know is it worked. But James moved way past just being a simple believer of of his brother, being a simple believer that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. What what, what happened to James is he literally became the head of the Jerusalem church. Galatians chapter 2, Paul is defending his ministry to the Gentiles. And here's what he says, God, for God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an, as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they should go to the Jews. Now, Paul, when you, when you see James and John, immediately your mind goes, this must be James and John, the son of Zebedee. These are brothers, but not at this point. At this point, James, the brother of John, has already been killed. Herod grabbed him in Acts chapter 12 and put him to death, murdered him. And so that's leaving this James which is the other James, which is Jesus' half-brother. Paul recognizes 
the call on James' life. Didn't matter what anybody else said. These these men declared that Paul was an apostle to to the Gentiles, and Paul is declaring them as leaders, including James. James is one of the pivotal players in the ministry of the Jerusalem church. And what I find of interest here is that in spite of his prominence, Jesus, James, humbly identifies himself as a simple servant of Jesus. James chapter 1 verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and right here, friends, this, this is one of the things that stands out to me in the letter of James. James could have described himself with authority. He could have said, do you know who I am? I am the son of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Messiah. I am the brother of God. I'm the brother of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Do you know who I am? But that's not what he says. Instead, he says, I am a doulos. I'm a bond slave. This this word is more than just servant. It's more than just picking up a towel and doing some dishes. A bond slave is describing a person who is an indentured servant, literally somebody who is owned by somebody else. And with that mindset, it's not surprising that he was elevated to this important position as the lead pastor in the Jerusalem church. Now, the purpose of the letter, why did James write? Well, he's writing to be an encouragement, an encouragement to make sure that our stated beliefs line up with our actions. James is writing to the scattered members of his congregation, encouraging them to live out their faith. Don't shrink back here. Don't let there be any hypocrisy among you. A claim of faith ought to bring about a change of your character, a change of your attitude, a change of your lifestyle. And the message of James can all be summed up in one simple verse. James chapter 2, verse 17, where James says, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. This little letter was written by a shepherd who was concerned about a scattered flock. These first Christians had endured a great deal at the hands of those outside the church. And because of that, it's not surprising James begins his letter by talking about trials and temptations. And if if there was anybody who understood about trials and temptations, it was these first Christians. And James wanted to make sure that their heads were screwed on correctly when they thought about all the pain and all the suffering that they were enduring. The reality is there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who have suffered and those who will suffer. If your life has been marked to this point kind of in an easy way without any without any big pain in it, well, grab hold because the day is coming when every one of us is going to suffer in this life. I mean, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, everybody who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're going to stand up for Jesus and be the kind of person that God has called you to be, it will bring pain into your life. And the reality is that these people that James is writing to fit that category. The words in James Chapter 1, verses 2 through 18 are a great encouragement to those Christians and to us 2,000 years later who will suffer a long life's journey. Leads me to say a couple of things as James introduces his book, a couple of things about suffering, about pain, about trials. Write them down. Will you do that? The first one is this. Trials 
or a necessary piece of the maturing process. It's a truth we just need to plant firmly into our minds. The road to maturity is marked by difficulty. You don't become a mature person simply because you grow older. No, I, I know a lot of older people who are anything but mature. A, a mature, mature person is a person who has been forged on the altar of pain. Any person who has taken steps of maturity is a person who has been kicked around a little bit. And that's exactly where James begins his letter to these kicked around Christians in the first century. Kicked around Christians who remember his church family. Here's what James says, chapter, chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. James lays out several key points here about maturity. R write them down. The first one is this. Trials are the place where your faith is put to the test. Right after Brenda and I were married, we, we moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. We had been in Missouri. I had a ministry in Kansas, and we had lived in Kansas for about 10 weeks as a married couple, and then we packed up our little Toyota. We moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. The, the, the purpose was I, I was going to go to seminary down, down there. Brenda got a job working in a bank just off of Fountain Square, and and, and as we moved into our, to our new lives in this place, newly married, new school, kind of a, the whole new thing, what I quickly came to understand is that seminary is a place where students become library rats. We, we, we seminary students, sit in, sit in dark corners of the library where we can be undisturbed and we can read and write and read and write and read and write. And I mean, there was a lot of reading. There was a lot of writing. We, we eat junk food, we drink a lot of coffee, and we generally allow our physical bodies to go to pot while we are enriching our minds and, and expanding our thinking and expanding our understanding of God's Word. So here, here we are, in kind of in this new situation, and I, I meet a, a guy that's become a lifelong friend. His name's Kelly, Kelly Crowfoot, of all things. And Kelly and I decided that we didn't want our bodies to go to pot. What we, what we needed to do was we needed to get to the gym several days a week. So if, if the goal is to keep our bodies in shape, then we were going to hold each other accountable to this, to this purpose. He, 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 he went to a fitness magazine. He cut out a picture of like Arnold Schwarzenegger going, and he put it on his refrigerator. And that became our goal that we were going we to go and take care of this. Our first, our first trip to the gym, our trainer put us through the ringer. He, he, he made us run, then it's, you know, sit-ups and then running and sit-ups and running. And then he's taking us on this journey through, through all the weight machines. And he put us on this high-low workout. I, I know today what he was doing was getting us to get sick. And, and the way that he did that was getting blood to kind of rush through our bodies. So it's working this way, then it's working down here, then it's working this, and the blood's doing this. And when you're not used to that and you're not ready for that, before you know it, you're running to the bathroom where you are unloading your breakfast. Do you hear what I'm saying? And then after you get done with all that, then he pulls you into an office and he says, yeah, you guys are in really horrible shape. You need to sign up. And at that point, you're going to sign the $40 million contract and you're going to guarantee to come back here three days a week. So that's what we did. We, we lost our breakfast. We went in, we signed the papers, and we made it our goal. The lesson is really interesting and it's really pointed. If you're going to run long distances and lift heavy weights, then, you have to, then you're going to have to endure a lot of pain. If you want to lift 200 pounds, if you want to bench press 200 pounds, you don't just get on the machine and put 200 pounds on and do it. 
No, if you're going to do that, you grind out rep after rep after rep. You start small. You start with 10 or 20 pounds. You might start with just the barbell with no weights on it. And you push that and you push that and you push that. And then after several days, a week, you put on a few pounds and you put on a few more pounds and you put on a few, few more pounds. And over the course of months, you train your body to be able to lift more. It took a while, but eventually that's what happened. Got to the point where we were bench pressing well over 200 pounds, you know, kind of at a max, we could push 240, 250 pounds, but it took months to get there. What, what, I, what I want you to know, friends, is that your spiritual growth to maturity works the same way. The, the, the Bible is full of commands and promises on, on life, how to deal with life, how to live life, how, how, how God wants your attitude to be reflected in life. And so you read these words, and, and, and oftentimes we memorize the words, but how do you know that they're actually true? When the Bible says that God is with you, that he will not leave you, when the Bible says that he will never allow anything into your life that you are not able to handle, when the, when, when the Bible says that you, you will be blessed with the resource to be able to deal with the stuff that is coming your way, how do you know all of that's true? Well, well the way that you know is you put it to work. You put your faith to work. You practice your faith. And when we face trial, when we face points of difficulty, when we face points of pain, that's when we come to the point where we, we are forced to put our faith into action. So how else are you really going to know that your faith works unless it's put into practice? The road to maturity is marked by pain, where you are encouraged to put your faith into practice. And here's, here's the second thought that James is laying out for us. If you want to know what maturity is, well, you need to understand maturity is dependent on a tested faith. How do you become a mature person? Through trials. Mature Christians are people who have been put through the ringer and, and they know that they can withstand it. They know that they can stand up underneath it. They know that they can handle the weight. They've, they've learned over the course of time that they can completely trust, they can completely rely on the Lord for everything in their lives. There, there's no worries because they know in every situation God is good, that he's got it all in his hands, and he's completely faithful to do the things that he said he would do. And that's exactly the point that James is making here in chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, the, the words here are significant. That you, could be, that you could be persevering. The, the word here is hupomone in the Greek. The word literally translated is endurance. Trials give you the strength to stand. And the more trials means the more weight that you can put on your shoulders and the more that you can withstand. This, this word complete speaks of holistic, that all parts measure up, that you, that you learn to endure in all areas, all avenues of your life. Not lacking is another holistic word. Not only are all parts complete, there is no lack, there is no void anywhere. A mature person is the one who's coming to the place that in all areas, all seasons, all, all avenues of life, they are pointed in a direction and they know that God is good and he is on the throne and he has this in his hands. 
It's what trials do for you. They enable you to grow to a place of maturity in your walk with God that you know that he is present with you and that you, that you are completely positively sure that he will always see you through. How do you get to that point? Through pain, through trials. Nearly six years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. You, 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 all, you all know that. Brenda and I knew that the trip to the doctor's office on that particular day was, was not going to be positive. Doctor had called me on the phone after all the tests, after the biopsy, and he said, I need to see you in my office next Tuesday. I said, well, what's the word? He said, I just need you to come in. When a doctor, if he had good news, he would just, he would just give it over the phone. You know what I mean? Everything's good. The tests are clear. You're clean. Go on. Don't worry. But that's not what he said. So when we got to the doctor's office that morning, Brenda and I already knew what the diagnosis was. I had cancer. And so we walked into the, we walked into the, you know, to the room, the di- and, 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 the, and the doctor walked in, and right after the doctor came, came nurse, and they kind of came in with their heads bowed, kind of, it looked like the weight of the world was on their shoulders. Do you know what I'm talking about? And so, so Brenda and I are sitting there, and, and, and now he's sitting down, and kind of in this moment of silence, he, he won't even like look me, look me in the eye. He just starts telling the story. And over the next 10 minutes, he, he just says, it. you have cancer, here's what, here's what we did, here's, here's, what your test re- here's the test results, and he kind of goes through the whole thing. Here's what it means, here's, here's what I suggest as a treatment, and, and there, there you go. And when he was done, he looked at me and he said, do you have any questions? And I said, No. And so, so his response back to me was, he said, I, I, don't, I don't think you heard what I just said. And I said, what do you mean you don't think I didn't hear what you just said? He said, I think you're in denial. I don't think you heard what I, now he's looking right at me. And I said, doctor, I, I heard everything you said. He said, you did? Well, what did I say? So I just parroted back to him in the next six or seven minutes exactly what he had said to me. And, and, and when he's hearing all that, I mean, his jaw is dropping and he's saying, He's saying, what's wrong with you? And I mean, it's like, what do you mean what's wrong with me? He said, you know, it's like, you're not reacting how I thought you would react. And I said, what? I mean, did you want me to like fall on the ground, crawl up into a a fetal position, suck my thumb, cry out and call for my mommy? Is that what you wanted me to do? And it's kind of like, well, yeah, most people are pretty upset at this point. I said, oh, doctor, 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 let me, let me, let me encourage you. Cancer is no big deal. I'm a Christian. It's, this is an opportunity to speak. I'm a Christian. And here's what I believe about my God. He's got me. I'm in his hand. And there is no better place to be than in the hands of God. Come on, church. Amen, right? And as I'm saying that to him, I'm saying, and here's the, here's the rest of the deal. If this thing has taken me out, which the only way it's going to take me out is if God allows it to take me out. But if it takes me out, I'm going to a place that's much better than this place. In fact, to be there today would really be okay. My wife and I are all right with that. So cancer, no cancer. Listen, to live as Christ, to die is gain. That's what I, uh, that's what I believe. Now, how do you get to that point? Well, it, it comes with a course of years where you're walking with God. And you just come to the point where you're absolutely positive, absolutely sure that God is in control, that you can rest in Him, that you can rely on Him, that you can lean into Him, that you don't have to worry about it. And I'm just telling you, it's not easy getting there. But over the years is our faith, and Brenda's and my faith have been severely tested over the years. And as that has happened, it just means that we have more ability to endure, to stand up underneath 
all that is coming our way. I know that God is real. I know that Jesus has saved me. I know I'm going to heaven when I die. And I know that anything that comes at me in this life is really okay because God is in control. Come on, church, yeah? And that leads to letter C. In the midst of troubles, because of all of that being true, you, you can rejoice. You can rejoice. That's what, that's, what, that's what James says in chapter, chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind. Why would you rejoice? Here's why. Because God's moving. God is at work. He's moving in your life through pain, through difficult situations that are helping you grow to maturity in your walk with him. Every time you face a problem, it should cause you to say, rejoice. That's, this, is, this is Paul in Philippians chapter, chapter 4, verse 4, when he says, rejoice in the Lord. Always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice. And you know where Paul was when he wrote this? In prison. Paul's in prison when these words are coming out. Paul is literally in a dungeon in Caesarea. He's been, he's been arrested. He's going to spend two years in this dungeon. He's strapped between two burly praetorian guard soldiers from the Roman Empire. And they're there with him 24 hours a day as he's trying to figure out how to sleep on, this, on, these, hard, on these hard rocks that he's tied down to. It's in the midst of this place that Paul is saying, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. And so, 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 so Paul, Paul goes on. If you read at the very end of this, of this book, just, just a few verses later, as Paul is writing the Philippians, he, he closes with greetings. And here's what he says. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. So, so what's Paul saying? Well, here's what he's saying. For the last two years, I've been chained to these, these praetorian guards. And they thought they had me, but the truth is I had them. They couldn't go anywhere. They're on 12-hour shifts. And so twice a day, the ceiling of the dungeon would open up. A rope would fall down. Two guys would climb down. They would unlock us. They would sit down. The two guys getting up would lock them down. They would climb up. And then for the next 12 hours, they were a captured audience. I could talk to them about Jesus and witness to them and lead them. And over the course of two years, Paul had led several of these people to Jesus Christ. And these people, these guards are now being sent back home. They're the elite guard. And when they get back to Rome, these are the guys that are guarding Caesar's family. And when they get there, the family recognizes that something's changed about Brutus. And now Brutus has the ability to speak the truth. What's changed? Here's what's changed. Jesus has changed. And so from Paul being in jail, chained up to a couple of guys where he's saying, rejoice in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. These guys are now going home and they're talking to Caesar's household. And people in Caesar's house are literally becoming believers. And it all happened because Paul was willing to see that God was at work in all situations. So here's the question. Do trials bring good things to our lives? And the answer is yes. Maturity, opportunity to minister. And for that, we should rejoice. Trials are a blessing in our lives. They lead us to maturity. And let me give you a second truth about trials. When trials come into your life, and they will, you should always be seeking God's perspective. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, 
He should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So what's James saying? Well, simple. James is saying that there is a wide chasm that exists between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. In Isaiah, the Lord chastises his people, the Jews, Israel, for following the wrong path in their lives. Isaiah 55 verse 9 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. Listen, friends, the path of wisdom is God's path. In any and every situation you find yourself, the path of wisdom is to say, what would God have me do? What would God have me know? What would God have, where would God have me go? What, what, what is it that God wants me to think, to be? And then, and then when you know that, walk the path. And here's the amazing promise of God. When you lack wisdom, when you don't know what to do, when you're in a situation where you're just kind of overwhelmed, then God says, ask. When you need wisdom about responding to your crisis or to your situation or to your issue, your problem, then ask. And the promise of God is he will give you all the wisdom you need to act in a right and just way in every situation you find yourself. And that wisdom has been given to us in the Word, the Word of God, the Bible. Listen, if, if, you're, if you're thinking the heavens are going to open up and there's going to be, you know, like a like writing in the sky to you from God, you really really don't need that. You need to look no further than what has been brought to us down through the ages, which is God's Word. This Word, the inspired Word, the breathed out inspired Word of God is filled with practical knowledge and practical wisdom for living our lives every day. The people of God need to be people who are fluent in God's Word. If you're seeking wisdom, it's right here. God says, read it, know it, memorize it, meditate on it, trust it, obey it. The problem is when trials hit our lives, it's easy to seek wisdom from the wrong place. And I'm just telling you, the wisdom of the world is counterintuitive to the wisdom of God. And, and you all know what I'm talking about. You, you, you have people in your lives who are far from God, who when a trial or a problem or a struggle hits you, they, they give you their wisdom. Here's what you should do. Here's how you should act. And here's how you should respond. And you know that it is literally countercultural away from what God says to you and how you ought to act and how you live and how you, how you respond. The people of God are not listening to the wisdom of the world. The people of God are listening to the wisdom of God's word. James' encouragement is don't listen to any of this. Put it down. Allow the trials of your life to build strength in you, to bring you to maturity into a closer, deeper relationship with God. And every time God's word proves to be true, you learn that you can be dependent upon it. Then allow that to make you stronger. And if there's ever a time that you don't know what to do, you don't know how to act, you don't know how to think, you don't know how to respond, then ask. Which leads to a third truth about trials. And the third truth is simply this. Whenever you're facing difficulty, problems, trials, don't put your focus on the temporal. Put your focus on the eternal. This is the big picture God is always wanting you to keep in mind. 
This life is nothing more than a blip. It's just, it's just a miss. I mean, that's what James is going to say in a, few, in a few chapters. Chapter 4, verse 14. What's your life? You're a mist. You appear for a little while, and then you vanish. When I was young, I thought, I thought 100 years was like forever. In fact, the time from Christmas Eve morning to Christmas Eve night, that, you know, that, like, that's 16 hours, that, that literally, when I was an eight-year-old kid, that seemed like it was about 40 years long. Today, I, I'm, I'm wondering where January went. Is anybody with me? Life is like going like, like at a thousand miles an hour. And what I'm, what I'm understanding is that, man, as I turned 60 this year, I was 50 yesterday. I was 30 about the day before yesterday. I'm going, where in the world has it gone? Life is a blip. And the word of encouragement from James is don't focus on the blip. Always put your focus on an eternity. It's a wise thing to do. Spend your earthly life with a focus on the eternal life. Don't be living for the goal of tomorrow. Be living for the goal of timelessness that's coming when you die. And according to James, the way that you focus on eternity is to do two very specific things. First, put your trust only in God, only in the Lord. That's all. James chapter 1, verse 9 says, The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. Now I know, you read this section of Scripture and automatically you think, I mean, like James kind of had a brain fade here. It's like he's turned down some kind of weird road. What? He's talking about trials and temptations and now all of a sudden he's talking about rich people and poor people and and high and low positions. What is this? Well, James hasn't gotten off track. What James is saying is simply this. When you're rich... When you're rich, you have a a great potential sin in your life. And here it is, that you can be dependent upon yourself. Because when problems come for a person who's really wealthy, I mean, really, what do they do? Do do, do they need any help? No. They got enough money. they 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 got enough resource in their own hands that they can pour stuff into it and they can take care of it. But when you're poor, you have no ability to do anything about it. Life hits and you're stuck car breaks down, what are you going to do? I mean, what are you going to do? Poor people have one opportunity, and that's to throw themselves into the hand of God and say, God, help me. I'm trusting you. Show me the way. Help me through this. I don't know where else to turn. The encouragement of James is for both groups to learn from the lower class, and that is to put all of your hope and all of your attention upon God. Trust him. Even if you have everything, don't put, your, don't put your hands and your sight and your strength on what you have as your resource in your own will and your own purpose. James is saying, put your trust in God. Because here's the deal. All of our lives are going to come to an end. It doesn't matter if you have $5 in the bank or $50 billion in the bank. It doesn't matter. Here's the truth. Given enough time, we are all going to take a last breath and we are all going to die. And here's what Hebrews 9.27 says, just as man is destined to die once and after that he will face the judgment. And if you, what I want to encourage you friends is to let this be a sobering thought because this life is just a blip and I am moving quicker to that moment than ever before. I'm moving faster to it where I'm going to take my last breath and I'm going to stand before God and at that moment I'm going to give an account at a judgment seat. 
life, death, judgment. Every one of us who's poor or rich ought to think in that term. Think eternally. Think about that day that is coming and focus our attention. Don't put your trust in your own self, in your own power, in your own ability. Put your trust in God. And then James adds this thought about living for eternity, that we should set our eyes on the crown of life. Blessed is the man who preserves under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that that God has promised to those who love him. Instead of living like this is all there is, that this life really is everything that's all important, live with eternity in your mind and heart and know that God is going to give the unbelievable blessing of eternity to everybody who's focused and stayed focused on that day. So set your eyes on that crown, on that day. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm just telling you, friends, on that day, for everybody who has lived for that day, And with that eternal mindset, on that day, there will be no regret. On that day, for everybody who's being ushered into the kingdom of heaven, there's going to be nobody that says, man, I wish I would have lived for myself. I wish I would have been all about me. I wish I would have made a little bit more money. No, everybody on that day that is being given the opportunity to go to heaven, receiving that grace and being ushered into heaven, they're going to say, thank you, Lord. It's everybody else who's going to say, what have I done? So how do you deal with troubles and trials in your life? First of all, know that trials are the things that help you to grow to maturity. Make sure that you're always seeking God's perspective and wisdom in the face of those trials. Never allow your vision to move past judgment and eternity. Focus on eternity, on the eternal, and all that is to come. And James ends in talking about trials by adding one more thought. And that's to not blame God for the temptations that are in your life. James 1.3, when tempted, no one should say, God's tempting me. You know, like I do, that one of the great temptations of humanity is when the problems come in our lives, that we want to put our fists up and shake it at God and say, who are you and why are you doing this to me? James gives us three quick thoughts to put into place in our minds to focus on on an ongoing basis about why that's a really bad idea. First, James says God God would never, never, he would never tempt you to evil. God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone to that point. God doesn't bring trouble into your life trying to cause you damage. The problems in this world are not God's fault. The problems in this world are not of God's making. God didn't do it. The problems in this world are of mankind's making. God loves us and he set boundaries around us and told us how to live and how to focus and how to function. And he also gave us free will so that we could have a relationship with him. Because where there's no decision to say, I want or I don't want, then there's really no relationship. So God gave you free will, and you have the ability to step over the boundaries. And listen, friends, when you step over the boundaries, that's what brings pain, that's what brings problems, and that brings trial into this world. God didn't do it. 
which leads to the second thought that James is laying out here about trials and temptations. Don't blame God. What you need to do is blame yourself because here's the truth. I am my own worst enemy. Am I alone here or is there anybody else who can agree with that? I'm my own worst enemy. James chapter 1, verse 14 says, Each of us is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, well, it gives birth to death. James is saying that people who are going to hell, death, are people who exercise their free will to step over the boundaries They allowed the lusts of their heart to take them to that place, and that lust has led to sin, which has led to death. It's not God who causes the trouble. It's me. I have lusts in my heart that turn myself away from God, and a bunch of the temptations and trials that I I face in my life are are self-inflicted. And when I allow those lusts to take hold, it will only lead to my demise. Here's the truth, friends. I'm my own worst enemy, which leads to one more thought here. Satan is fully engaged in your demise. Fully. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. God says, Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly, have it full, have it overflowing. But if you want to know the truth, there's, here's the divide. Where God's intention is life, the enemy's intention is death. Satan knows the things that will lead you from God. He knows the things that draw you in a lustful way, and he's constantly putting those carrots on a stick out in front of you, working to turn your head away from God. We have got to see Satan for exactly who he is, our enemy. He's working diligently to bring you down. He wants to destroy you. He wants you to go to hell right along with him. And when he's at work in your life, it is not for any good thing. There's nothing freeing about following his path. The only thing that his path is going to lead to is damnation. Not only in the life to come, but in this world too. And Jesus is encouraging you to be aware. And to all of this, James has a response. In verse 16, he says, Don't be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from, is from above. It's coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we may be a kind of first fruits to all he created. And instead of seeing God as the problem in your life, see him as your great protector, as your great advocate, as the one who is leading you to life, to peace, to security, to joy, to eternity. Not only does God give you the ability to stand strong in the middle of all the trouble and all the pain, he has the ability to use all of those difficult situations and bring you to depth and maturity in your relationship and your walk with him. And for that, James says, we ought to praise God. If there were ever any people who understood what it means to live under trial, pain, It was these first Jewish Christians. Their lives had been made nearly impossible because they simply believed and confessed their faith in Jesus Christ. But they refused to be brought down by the trouble that was unleashed on them by evil people who were agents of the enemy. Instead, they set their hearts and their minds on Jesus 
and live for Him. And as a result, as a result, one of the greatest eras of kingdom growth, one of the greatest eras of people flocking to Jesus Christ exploded onto the earth. These Christians in Acts chapter 8, that this great persecution unleashes against them. They didn't put their tail between their legs and run and run to corners and hide in closed, behind closed doors. No. Acts chapter 8 verse 4 says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And the result? We'll read the book of Acts. The result was the church exploded. It went from being a city church in Jerusalem to being a regional church in Palestine to literally being a worldwide church where millions of people were hearing the message of Jesus Christ and coming to faith in Him. And here's the deal, friends. God wants to do the exact same thing today. He wants to move in your life in power and in authority. And he wants to use you to accomplish good for his kingdom right now, right here, in this place and beyond. The truth is he can. And the promise is if we will allow him to, he will. So let me encourage you to bow your heads. Would you do that? And let me ask you, friends, are, are, you, are you going through trials? Is there pain in your life? Are you undergoing temptation and trial and struggle? The reality is God wants to use it for His good. He wants to accomplish His will and His purpose and His pleasure. And He wants to use you to do it. His encouragement to you, His call to you is to let Him have His way. For you to give Him your life. To follow Him with all of your heart. So Lord, as we unleash this new series, I just pray that You'll help us to be people of faith. Be people who have single vision people who are turned to you, people who are following you, people who are living by faith in your name. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to grow and to mature and to become the people that you want us to be. Help us, Lord, to that end is our prayer. And we lift it in the name of the one who makes it possible, Jesus. And God's people said,